My name is Kerry Hayes, and I'm the Chief of Staff at the City of Chattanooga. You're listening to The Scanner, a podcast from Mayor Andy Burke's Council Against Hate and the American Diversity Report. Becky Monroe is a lawyer, a researcher, and an advocate for communities that have been victimized by hate crimes and discrimination. Currently, she is the director of the Divided Community Project at The Ohio State University Moritz School of Law, where she offers free consulting to cities that are grappling with bias-motivated conflict and violence. She comes to this role after serving as counsel and as interim director of the Department of Justice's Community Relations Service, as a senior policy advisor to the White House Domestic Policy Council, and most recently, as the director of the Stop Hate Project at the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, which was the basis for most of our conversation. Becky Monroe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What is the Stop Hate Project at the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and why did it come about? So the Stop Hate Project is a, it's a part of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, which is a racial justice organization. And the Stop Hate Project was created in part um, after uh, the election of 2016 when we saw an increase in reported hate incidents and hate crimes. And so the goal was to think about how do we have sort of a community-centered approach to responding to hate incidents and hate crimes, and how could the Lawyers Committee as a national organization help support local leaders and local community organizations that were sort of on the front lines of responding to hate. And I think a lot of our listeners might not know what the National Lawyers Committee is. Can you explain their origins a little bit and why this work fits in with their mission? Sure. So the the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law uh, was actually created at the uh, request of Robert F. Kennedy, and the idea was initially that the private bar had sort of an obligation to get engaged around civil rights issues. And so initially the goal, and to this day, they do a lot of work with bringing in the private uh, sector, private law firms to do work uh, to advance civil rights. And the mission of the organization is to advance civil rights with a a focus on racial justice. And um, as a uh, racial justice organization, it was important to sort of recognize this uh, increase in hate incidents and hate crimes and think about how as an organization it could respond in a way that was that remained community-centered even though it was a national organization. One thing that was really important for the Lawyers Committee and for the Stop Hate Project was to acknowledge that while people were talking more about hate incidents and hate crimes, hate's not new and that for many communities this was something that people had been experiencing for generations. And so it was important to respect that experience and think about how do you learn from people who, who've who lived that, who know it, and then think about how you engage communities to respond more effectively. And you have been in this work for a long time in a lot of different roles. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. I'm kind of curious, generally, at the beginning, how did you arrive at this kind of work? And, and what was your point of entry into it? I think, um, you know, I when I first started working around these issues, it was actually not directly around hate, but it was around uh, communities that were often targeted for discrimination and hate. So I uh, worked as a legal services lawyer in Los Angeles for Bitsetic Legal Services, and I often represented undocumented immigrant workers who um, were not being paid. So sometimes people would, um, would tell them they would pay them a certain rate and then pay them much lower, far below minimum wage, which they were entitled to under under both federal and state law, um, and sometimes not at all. They would say, well, if you complain, I'll just call ICE. And so um, my initial engagement was more thinking about when I was working with these different uh, workers and then meeting their families and hearing about 
their experiences that extended well beyond not getting a paycheck. Um, and just thinking about sort of as um, as a lawyer and also just as a person in the community, what is your obligation when you find out about something like this, when you know this is happening, when you when people have shared perhaps some of the worst things that's ever happened to them, you you can't unknow that. And so what do you do with that? And so I was fortunate that I had this opportunity to do work more around hate incidents and hate crimes and then sort of went from there when I worked in the um, Obama administration, started working in this component of the Department of Justice called the Community Relations Service that was created to help communities prevent and respond more effectively to hate crimes. Um, and so through that experience, just we just had this enormous privilege of learning from local communities who were doing really extraordinary things to help support people who were targeted for hate and think about how to prevent it. And you mentioned your work in the Obama Justice Department from 2012 to 2017. Is that That's right. roughly correct? Yeah. Uh, what, what prompted you to leave? Uh, well, I was a political appointee, so I had to leave at the end of, of President Obama's term. Um, I have many fantastic career colleagues who are still there and who, um, you know, I know from working with them are really committed to to um, enforcing the statutes that we are, you know, sort of charged with enforcing. Sure. How did how did the work that you were responsible for uh, change during those five years? What what changed with regards to hate in America during that time? And what's what do you think has happened since then? I think. Um, and I think it probably, not probably, it would be a little presumptuous of me to sort of say how how exactly hate changed. I think part of what we saw across the country was more and more communities sort of recognizing that they had this power to do something around both hate incidents, hate crimes, and discrimination. And so I think part of what we saw was um, it, it was a real sort of uh, impressive um change in some communities about sort of seeing something that had been going on sometimes for generations and saying, we can do something about this. Um, as I mentioned, when I first joined the, de the Department of Justice, I was at the Community Relations Service. And that's this sort of very unusual component within DOJ um, created by the Civil Rights Act, does not have any law enforcement authority, so not a prosecutorial component. But the whole idea was that, that there was this recognition that communities have the wisdom to address these issues. And that um, one thing that the federal government might do is just to serve as sort of a, a neutral mediator to get people to the table. And so during the time that I was there, I just saw some really powerful work done by local community leaders that we were fortunate to sort of help support. Um, and that included some issues around hate incidents and hate crimes. It also just a lot of issues around concerns around discrimination and sort of human dignity. So um, I have tremendous colleagues uh, in the western part of the country who worked with um, uh, local organizations uh, around anti-immigrant laws and thinking about how do they respond to protests safely, recognize the, the right of people to protest, keep people safe. Um, and just I, I can remember several examples of just really impressive work by um, young people by older people who coming together to say this is who we are as a city and this is what we're going to do. So I remember um, there's one example in, in Arizona SB 1070 which was an anti-immigrant law that um, was later challenged successfully in the Supreme Court. Um, but during that time there were these massive protests and so we at CRS were brought in and my colleague uh, Ron Wakabayashi who ran the office 
kind of helped to bring all the different parties to the table. I still remember this one scene where we had people from Sheriff Arpaio's office with people who were representing uh, day laborers and organizers and immigrant rights activists and the fire department all to talk about, we know this protest is coming, how do we keep people safe? Um, and that kind of gave enough groundwork to then start thinking about how do you address longer term issues. So in that context, um, you had people from the fire department saying, make sure people have water because they could pass out. Um, but then we also had, you know, we were there as the community relations service to help to help keep people safe and also to help sort of minimize potential for violence. So the next day, as anticipated, I think about five or six neo-Nazis came with weapons. And so our sort of mandate at that point in time was to help help keep people separated. But what we did in advance of that was train um, a lot of local yeah, leaders, including college students, uh, religious leaders, um, uh, there were some really phenomenal religious leaders who used to call them God squads, so they would kind of work together and um, to keep the peace. And honestly, they did all the work. So we talked about sort of how do you de-escalate situations, how do you keep people separated, and they were just incredibly talented. So I think during that time, we just saw, I was really fortunate to see communities responding in a really impressive way and recognizing that power they had. Um, and, you know, following the election, I think... Uh, you know, I'm obviously not there anymore. I do know I have some really talented former colleagues who care deeply about these issues, who went there because they believed in it, and I think they are still trying to do that work. I think that they don't likely have the support that we did. Yeah. Well, you mentioned something a few minutes ago that I thought was really wonderfully said, where you talk about the wisdom that resides inside communities, and it sounds like so much of what you do is trying to sort of find that and bring it to the surface yeah. and, and use it. And I'm, and I'm wondering, I know every community is different, and I'm sure the challenges they face are all very different. But I'm, I'm curious if there are either specific stories uh, that you could share about some of the work that you've been doing over the past couple of years or commonalities that might be crossing across parts of the country or, or different cities. I think, um, you know, I do think there is an, an, an a tremendous wisdom in communities to address issues. And and I don't say that just as a way to, 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 to be nice. I think it, it's, it's just a way to be honest and practical. And nobody knows their community better than the local leaders who've been living it. And one of the things I do want to say that is, cuts across communities is that when I talk about local leaders, I certainly include government leaders and the leaders of different organizations. But I'm also including what we call non-traditional leaders. So people who don't have titles, but who everybody knows in that neighborhood, for example, really have um, have a lot invested in the community. People care about um, sort of what happens there. And I think one of the challenges that we have but where we see the most success is when you're able to engage people who maybe don't have a title but have a lot of power in the community um, and who's, who've always had a voice uh, and whose voice deserves to be listened to. And I think we've seen that um, in, in a lot of different communities, I think, uh, you know, and a recent example, um, I've been really fortunate to work in a community where there had been some issues around white nationalism in the city. Um, and there was sort of a precipitating incident where there were protests because people knew about the white nationalism and that there was somebody who sort of espoused those beliefs. Um, and there was a lot of fear around the protest and counter protests. But what quickly became clear was that Yes, there was fear around that, but there was that fear was just at the surface and that there were deeper issues that needed to be addressed around a history of discrimination, um, 
other issues around kind of confronting other communities who are marginalized. And so one of the things I think is challenging about this work, but is um, ultimately uh, has the potential to be really effective, is that so often the really difficult issues are the ones that people don't want to talk about because they are ugly parts that people would like to sort of relegate to history. Um, but one thing we see over and over again, including in that community, is that history is now and that those issues that people sort of don't want to talk about, they uh, they really play into sort of what's happening today. And I think, um, you know, what we've seen effective in places is where people are willing to grapple with that really ugly history directly and head on. Um, yeah, and, and you, you mentioned the uh, the importance of, of keeping victims obviously centered in this mm-hmm. work and, and how you address it. And one of the unique lenses I think that, that you kind of proceed from is the um, the effects that this has on health, public, yeah. pu- public health as, a, as at, at scale and certainly the individual mental and physical health of Absolutely. victims. Kind of wondering what, what additional insights that approach may have given you and what that looks like when you're on the ground working with people. I think, um, and I think it's something I learned from working with different families and, and survivors and, and and families of victims um, is that the impact of hate, while um, I think most people would recognize it would be very painful, it's the depth of that pain is, 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 is sort of hard to, it's hard to contemplate. Um, I think one aspect of hate crimes that is somewhat unique to hate crimes is that it may target in theory, one person, but it really is targeting an entire community. And so, you know, when we talk about it as a public health issue, and um, and in fact, that's how many leaders describe it um, in the medical field is as a public health issue. It's because it really does affect entire communities, and it's um, you know, there's a lot of there's there's um, I think important research around how you know people who are targeted for hate, different rates of um, of, of mental health issues that they confront that are different from people who are who are targeted for other kinds of crimes. Um, even if you start looking at issues around racism more broadly, the connection to, to health around cardiovascular health, for example, there's data that shows that people who are targeted for racism suffer greater um, rates of cardiovascular um, health issues. And I think you know I think it's just a very like I said, one of the things I've been really privileged to learn from people who are, uh, targeted for hate is um, is that they've shared that that deep pain, which is often what motivates people to go on and fight for others, and that is something about this work that I think is um, incredibly inspiring and uh, sort of remarkable to see. So you talk to someone who's, um, you know, I think a lot about, for example, Dennis and Judy Shepard, who um, lost their son to a brutal hate crime because he was gay. And the work they have done for 20 years, tirelessly, because they don't—they recognize that, that um, they don't want that to happen to anyone else. They don't want that to happen to another family. And but when you stop and think about the pain of caring for their son uh, before he died, um, and of sort of every time they go into a room to talk about this, knowing that they're going to have to relive it, um, I think. You know, I, I just learned a lot from them about both about sort of the incredible pain that a hate crime can um, have on someone, but also uh, the incredible strength um, of uh, parents um, 
in particular, I, I know um, Judy Shepard will say, like, don't mess with a mom. Um, and yeah. I think watching um, watching her and watching her in a room where I can't tell you how many people will come up to her and say, I still remember when that happened. I remember when Matthew was killed. I remember what it meant to me. And I remember what your support for Matthew and for the rest of the community meant. Yeah. So I think, you know, you, you see in those ways. Um, I also think that the uh, there's just very real harm not only to the individuals who are targeted but again you see entire communities who then all of a sudden are less likely to engage in the community because they're fearful of leaving their house so there's in addition to health consequences there's very real social and economic consequences um and i think it's uh the the thing the other side of that is that communities do have this power to respond in a way that can show that the that the people who are targeted are not alone, the communities who are targeted aren't alone, and that maybe can help to address some of the very real mental health issues that that come with this, physical health issues, economic issues, and that communities can sort of strategically organize in a way to support people. Yeah, and I'm curious to have you talk about that a little bit more. You're here to, to keynote the kickoff of our Pivot Point right. series, which is a set of policy forms that the Council Against Hate has put into place to try to build out the the legal and policy framework about how we can respond to these things and, and anticipate them. What are the some of the leave behind things that you would want Chattanooga to think about or Chattanoogans to think about as we as we try to address this? I think one thing I I will say it's incredibly impressive the sort of thoughtful intentional way that this council was put together, um, and I think that. Uh, Based on everything I've learned about the council and the level of engagement from the community, it's it's incredibly impressive and very um, should make everyone feel very hopeful about the ability to actually to to respond in a way that makes that makes a difference and that helps people. Um, I think some of what uh, I hope to leave um, uh, people here in Chattanooga with is sort of a sense that not only do they have that power, they've already exercised the power in really important ways to start thinking about how do you respond effectively to support victims and survivors of hate crimes, um, but also to think about how do you um, help to prevent hate in some ways um, while also respecting people's First Amendment rights um, and and really kind of bringing the community together to be stronger. So the two sort of takeaways I'm hoping are that sort of to leave some potential strategies to think about how to really support communities in need um, and people who are targeted for hate, as well as thinking about how do you engage what is in, obviously an incredibly active citizenry um, in in doing work to support people um, across uh, across Chattanooga. Yeah, Becky, where do you draw? hope in this time? What, what keeps motivating you to stay engaged in this? I think, um, I do think it's an opportunity to, to talk to people like people here in Chattanooga who are sort of, who are seeing things that they're saying, this is not who we are, um, but who are also willing to look within and say, but this is a part of who our city is and that we have to confront um, whether it, it's a history of racism, other forms of discrimination, we have to be truthful about that. And that as a part of that truth telling, we will then start to change sort of how we how we approach these issues differently. So I think that, and then I, I do think the privilege of working with families and survivors of hate crimes and seeing how they um, have sort of decided when confronted with the worst thing that could ever happen to them, that they care deeply enough about other people, that they recognize the connection that they have with other people, that it is their obligation, they say, to go and help others. And I think that's, um, you can't sort of see that and not 
you can't unknow that. Once you see that, you realize you if, if, if they recognize that, then you clearly have an obligation to do something too. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it for today. Great. Becky, thanks so much. Thank you. My thanks to Becky for her time today and to Katie Wells in Mayor Burke's office and David Eichenthal, Public Policy Chair of the Council Against Hate, for all of the work they put into making this happen. Thanks also to Sam Menser and the staff of the Chattanooga Public Library for their production support and assistance. Our next Council Against Hate event will be Monday, February 24th, when we welcome Carmen Best, Chief of Police for the City of Seattle, for a conversation about how local law enforcement can engage with hate and violent extremism at the local level. If you want to join the Mayor's Council Against Hate, please check out our website, cha.city against hate, for more information about all of our action teams and what you can do to get involved right now. This is The Scanner, a podcast from Mayor Burke's Council Against Hate and the American Diversity Report. Thank you for listening.